listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. Hearing doesn't matter at all if we don't apply what it is that we hear from Jesus. We're in the middle of a series, message number five, Vision for Life, where we are discovering, some of us, others of us rediscovering God's vision for every life, every family, every single church on the planet. And we're rediscovering or discovering for the first time God's mission for every single life, the life of every follower of God. If you're a follower of God, then you need to be aware of the mission that God has given to you as a God follower for you individually, for your family, and for every single church. Welcome, of course, to our podcast audience. We hope you are listening by podcast. This message is just as relevant and pertinent to our podcast audience as it is to those of us who are live. How about a big welcome for our podcast audience? Let them know. And so what we want to look at today is Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Today I want to talk about you and your PMT. You and your PMT. Talk is cheap. Here it is, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus' last words to the disciples. The end of this gospel. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some that I have commanded you, being selective in what you teach and in what you put into practice. And behold, I might be with you some of the time, and at others I might be sleeping. That's the reversed standard version right there. It's not what it says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do not confuse knowledge and education with commitment and application. Do not confuse knowledge and education with commitment and application. Notice Jesus does not say, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to just listen to or study all that I have commanded you, teaching them to be aware of what I've commanded you. No. A disciple makes the transition from head knowledge to life application, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What is the definition of a disciple? A disciple is somebody who uh, obeys, somebody who observes, somebody who puts into practice all of the teachings of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And in our nation, we are suffering, I think, from a moral, a theological, a financial, 
a spiritual crisis because we have confused knowledge and education with commitment and application. If knowledge and education were sufficient to change the world, the world would be dramatically different than it already is. Our country would not be going down a cesspool in a variety of wrong areas that it's going down if knowledge and education about the teachings of Jesus were sufficient. We have quite a few seminaries, quite a few Bible colleges, quite a few churches all throughout this country. And I'm afraid that what we have done, because it's easier to do this, we have confused knowledge and education about the teachings of Jesus with commitment and application. Commitment to Jesus and the application of Jesus' teachings. A disciple compared to a dabbler when it comes to following God. A disciple is somebody who observes, puts into action, practices, practices the teachings of Jesus. And what I'd like us to do is take for the remainder of our time three particular areas that mark the distinction between the life of a disciple and the life of a dabbler. The P-M-T. And that's what we're going to look at for the remainder of our time. But so that you don't think that it's just my ideas that I'm coming up with, there's a man, a brother in Christ, who wrote a book called Crazy Love. His name is Francis Chan. Among other things, Francis Chan was a pastor of a very large church until he left that. And many in the church community, many pastors scratched their heads and wondered, why would this man, who is a very well-read author and a very successful, quote-unquote, pastor of a very large church, leave that all behind? And I think the simple answer is because Francis Chan knew that his identity was not in his church, being the pastor. Francis Chan knew that even though God had called him to be the pastor of that church for a season, God had called him first and foremost to an ongoing preoccupation with commitment to Jesus Christ. And when a disciple is committed to Jesus Christ, they know, you know, that God has permission at any time to change the course and direction of your life. It doesn't matter what you do. It only matters who you follow. I'd like us to watch and listen now to Francis Chan as he talks to us about the Great Commission. From everything I read in this book, everything I understand about this book, I believe we grossly underestimate God. Like we, we totally don't realize how stunned we are going to be when we first see his face. And I think we, we, we're, we're, we're severely, like, uh, misunderstanding it, it, just how serious it is when Jesus Christ gives a command. Like, I don't think we get, like, he sent us, he put us on a mission. Like, you and I, we exist. I'm on this earth on a mission. And I, and I think we miss that. Like, we don't understand how huge that is. 
For, for Jesus to rise from the grave and to say every ounce of authority that exists is right here. And here's what I'm telling you I want you to do with your life. Go and make disciples. And so for us to ignore that, to, for us to come to, our, to the end of our lives and, and then come before Almighty God and say, I did not make a single disciple. I, I mean, we got to understand that's a really, really big deal. To know that came out of the mouth of Christ and that we can't point to any disciples. And, and just to make sure we're all on the same page here, I mean, understand the context of the Great Commission. To understand that Jesus rising from the grave, gathering his followers together on that mountain and giving this message saying, hey, go, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Do we understand, do we all agree that he was not talking about just you guys discipling one another? He was saying, you've got to get this message to the whole world. Somehow, I want, I want followers from every nation. You need to get out there. Get this message and you understand. I mean, you see the context of when Jesus spoke that. He was saying, reach the people who have not been reached. He was not saying, okay, you group of people, you disciple him, and you guys just make a little circle and disciple each other for years and years and years. He's saying, no, you've got to get this message out there. You've got to reach these people. But I get it. It's it's hard. It's it's very very difficult. Um, I don't like sharing my faith. I, I like this. This I don't mind. This is easy to me. I'd rather preach. I'd rather write. I'd rather, you know. I don't know, put together sermons, counsel people on the golf course. You know, it's like I, I'll do anything. But to go up to a stranger who doesn't know God in our culture where that's just seen as so wrong to push your beliefs on someone else, but to, to look at someone in the eyes knowing ahead of time that he's probably going to think that my morals and this idea of one way getting to heaven and, and them needing to trust in Jesus for their salvation is going to be so offensive to them. Knowing that, that Jesus calls people to repent and turn from their ways and to follow him. And so I, knowing that they're going to be so opposed to that, that's so hard for me to muster up the courage to do that. Because, you know, I hate being rejected. So I get it. I understand why we don't. I don't like to be rejected. I, I, I don't even, sometimes I don't even know how to start the conversation like, how do I get started talking about this? Sometimes I, I get so nervous and so scared. Like, how do I start this? And then I start thinking, okay, what if they start asking me about things that I don't know about? What if they ask me questions that I can't answer? And so all these things. And then above all that, I'm the type of person where I hate conflict. I, I'm, you know, some people, they like to argue. I don't like to argue. It's like, oh, whatever. I don't care. And so the thought of going up to someone, offending them, and then trying to tell them that they need Jesus is not my favorite thing to do. And so I get it. I understand. It's difficult. But God Almighty, like God, 
my creator said, go make disciples. So I don't want to sit and make excuses. Your life centered upon the mission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded is not a wasted life. Your family centered upon the mission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is not a wasted family. Our church, your church, centered upon the mission of Jesus Christ, the command to go. This is not the great suggestion. This is a commission, yes, it is a commandment to go, to get busy, to make sure that it happens. Don't just dream about this. Don't just think about this. Don't just be aware of it. Center everything in the church around the mission of Jesus Christ. Who are we to change the mission of Jesus? We have the marching orders of Jesus Christ. In fact, he tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, you can live your life with the assurance that the next words that come out of my mouth are significant for you to have everything in your life revolve around them. And Jesus says, don't just dream about it. Don't just think about it. Don't just be aware about it. Don't just be educated about it. Don't just be knowledgeable over it. Make it happen in your life. Make it happen in your family. Make it happen in the church, especially in these dark days in which we live. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And when we read Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, and when we read all of the Gospels, and when we read the book of Acts, and when we read the epistles, and when we read the book of Revelation, where there are people from every tribe and tongue, language, before the throne of Jesus Christ, we begin to get it, don't we? We begin to understand that everything revolves around the person and the works of Jesus Christ. That this idea of people spending an eternity separate from God is true. It's real. Was Jesus wasting his time? Was God Almighty wasting his time speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ and all through the Old Testament. Or maybe there really is something to this great news that has been entrusted to us called the gospel. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is the mission of God. When you center your life on the mission of God, you'll never waste your time. When you have all the decisions in your family centered upon how will this or will it not make disciples. You'll never waste your time. When a church has decisions to make about this ministry or that ministry or this decision or that decision, the filter through which all decisions must be going through is the filter of will this lead people to the feet of Jesus Christ? Will this help them Obey everything that Jesus commanded.
See, it's easy to say no when you have a big enough yes. If the big yes in your life, the big yes in your family, the big yes in your church, in our church, is to make disciples, you will begin to base every single decision around whether or not it moves you toward that objective or away from that objective. When you are in love with someone, your life revolves around that someone. When you are passionate about something, your life revolves around that something. The life of a disciple distinctively, deliberately is invested in people. Now, there are three types of people you need to have in your life, and you need to be each one of these types of people. Three types of people you need to have in your life, and you need to also be each one of these people. The first is a Paul. You need to have a Paul in your life. Paul, if you know, the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament. No other author wrote as many books in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul. And so he is a patriarch of our faith. Somebody who's mature in the faith, spiritually mature. And you can follow his teachings, model your life after him. In fact, he's the one that said, follow me as I follow Christ. You need to look for... In the daily routine of your life, week after week, you need to look for a Paul. And I'm not being sexist when I say that. Paul simply symbolizes a more spiritually mature person. Somebody who's walked longer with Jesus, not necessarily in terms of longevity, but in terms of their track record with Jesus. See, some of us have known Jesus a longer time than others who have known Jesus for a lesser time. And people who know Jesus for a lesser time sometimes are more spiritually mature than us. You need to find somebody who doesn't just have a long track record since they've accepted Christ, but somebody who is spiritually mature, somebody who knows the Word of God, somebody who's not a Pharisee just knowing the Word of God. It doesn't matter how many times a person has read the Bible. What matters is how much the Bible is being read through the course of their life. And so someplace there is somebody who's more mature than you, more obedient than you, more surrendered than you, whom you can look up to and model your life after, model your life upon. And I would suggest find not just one, Paul, but find two or three. Because when you follow that person and you model your life after how they follow Jesus, what happens is you not only pick up the strengths, but also some of the weaknesses of that person. And so if you have two or three of those types of individuals, you'll learn some good things from this particular Paul, and you'll learn some good things from this particular Paul, and you'll say, well, I don't think that their life is good for me to model after this particular way, but it's good in this way. And you balance things out. But you need to have at least one Paul, somebody who's spiritually mature that you look to, that you ask advice to. And God has given me the privilege in my life to have some of you here at the church who I consider to be Paul's, and you might not even know that you are. And through the course of the years, others who are not part of this church, who I still remain in close contact with, 
who I ask questions to, who I ask them to keep me from blowing smoke up my own nose or having other people blow smoke up my nose. You don't want somebody blowing smoke up your nose. You want somebody to be honest with you, somebody who's got a track record of following Jesus. So you should look for somebody who's a Paul that you can look up to, you can model your life after. And you should be a Paul to other people. You know something more than somebody else who has just come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and God. You can pour into somebody else somewhere. We've got a large church getting larger. There's somebody in this church into whose life you can pour, that you can be a Paul in their life. They can look to you. They will look to you. And they will follow you as you follow Christ. So you can be that person in somebody else's life as well, but you have to be intentional about all three of these people, the Paul. Second one is Barnabas. A Barnabas. You need to be and you need to look for a Barnabas. Now, I'm privileged here at at Grace. I have two guys in particular that I consider to be Barnabases for me, Pastor Greg and Pastor Bob. I didn't ask to have those guys given to me. I inherited them when I came here to the church. And so I was blessed by being given those guys. We have a good relationship together, working relationship, quote unquote, brotherhood in arms as pastors of the church here. And I thank God that I got to inherit some good guys who have solid Bible knowledge solid ministry experience, full-time. Pastor Greg's been here for 25 years, for Pete's sake. Pastor Bob has been here for 17 years. They both have formal theological training. They've counseled people. They've met with people. They've been in church crises, not just here, but in other churches as well. They know what it is, the unique trappings, the unique struggles, the unique difficulties that a pastor goes through. And when I share with them or when they share with me, we know that none of us will look down our noses at the other and say, oh, how wicked you are. We already know how wicked we are. No good thing dwells within us. But you need a Barnabas. You need a son of encouragement. That's what that name Barnabas means. You need to be that person to somebody else. You need to look for that person in your life. Look with me at Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we get a taste of the ministry of Barnabas and the idea of why it would be healthy and helpful for you to have a Barnabas or two in your life. In Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Who? The apostle Paul. God had done a work in his life, he's been converted, and he came to Jerusalem and attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him because he was breathing out murderous threats, putting people in prison, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 11. Also, look with me at Acts chapter 11. Barnabas again being significantly used by the Lord. And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him... He brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. God using Barnabas to be a son of encouragement, genuinely speaking. Look with me now at Acts chapter 13. Now in verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch, the same place, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Barnabas being used consistently in the scriptures as a son of encouragement. You need an encouragement partner in in your life. You need an encouragement partner or more than one encouragement partner. Now, we've heard it used before, accountability partner. I don't like the phrase accountability partner. I'm all for accountability. The reason why I don't like accountability partner is because I have found in my own life and in years of ministry with other guys that the word accountability ends up being almost like a policing term, number one. And number two, it ends up being something of a maintenance mode, an occupy-until-he-comes approach. But the word encouragement is active, seems to move us forward and lift us up and lift others up. So you can be accountable to somebody. Typically what happens in accountability is, Somebody's helping you not do certain things. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't watch porn on the internet. Don't waste your time here. Don't talk to your wife this way. Don't talk to your husband that way. Don't, 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 don't. And we rarely get around to the do, do, do. If Frank Sinatra were here, he would say, dooby, dooby, do. But this idea of encouragement, we learn a lesson from Barnabas that he was somebody whom God used to come alongside of another whom God had called to lift up his arms, to run a race with him, and to be successful. And you need to be that person to other people. You need to be a Barnabas to at least deliberately, at least deliberately, intentionally, one other person. Find somebody in this church Find somebody in this church. Why are you talking about doing that within the church? Because this is the primary battleground to which God has called you. If you're part of this church, this is the place where you hang your hat. This is the place where we are focusing on making disciples of all nations. And I'm giving you a very practical opportunity, a very practical way that you can invest yourself as a disciple who teaches other people to obey what Jesus has commanded 
to come alongside of somebody else in this church and be an encouragement and to look for somebody who encourages you. Somebody who sees themselves as an equal to you. You see yourself as an equal to them and you come alongside of each other and you encourage each other. The third thing you need is a Timothy or a Titus. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. See, Paul had this. This is what Paul had in Timothy, the man into whom he built and invested. And also he did this with Titus. He leaves Titus on the island of Crete to finish something. Paul was investing himself in a younger person, not necessarily in age, but in the faith. In the faith. There are people around you who are younger in the faith, who need encouragement, who need you to help them grow and mature in their faith. And Timothy was one such person. You need to look for a Timothy or Timothys. And again, I'm not being sexist. I'm using this as an example. And you need to be a Timothy. That's what you'll be when you find your Paul or Pauls. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened in the undeserved favor, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Do you know as a disciple of Jesus Christ you've been enlisted into God's army? That's the mentality of a disciple, not a dabbler. That is the mentality of a disciple, a soldier mentality, not a civilian mentality. Look at how Paul starts this off, writing to Timothy. You then, my child. He wasn't his natural child biologically. It was his child in the faith. Paul, the older man who was, who was knowledgeable of the Lord, knew the scriptures, was putting the word of God into practice, called Timothy his child because he was deliberately investing in him. Look around this church. In the course of a given week, there's a young man in the faith, a young woman in the faith. And by the way, you keep it man to man and woman to woman. You don't disciple somebody in the opposite sex. Otherwise, that sex thing might end up becoming an issue. Can cloud the waters. Can cloud your visibility, your objectivity. So men disciple men, women disciple women. Look around you at this church. There is somebody craving to be discipled by somebody. And you know that saying is true. Everybody thought somebody was doing something, so nobody did anything. Be that somebody in the life of another person who is hungry For a mighty move of God in their life to learn the way of God, to learn what it is to walk with Jesus. You have experience in your life, things that you can teach them, investing into them as a Paul in the life of somebody who's younger in their faith. You need a Paul, you need a Barnabas, you need a Timothy, and you need to be a Paul and a Barnabas and a Timothy. A disciple is intentional about the P's in their life, the people in their life. A disciple is intentional, deliberate with the people in their life. 
You've got to make it happen, not just dream about it, not just think about it, not just know about it. Don't confuse knowledge and education with commitment and application. Look for the people in your life. Make it happen. And I would suggest begin with your own family. Let me just say this to make this abundantly clear for a moment. I know that people get excited about ministry. It's a good thing when people get excited about ministry. I know that one of the easiest things to do in ministry is to get involved in ministry outside of your family, and that makes your family a target for the devil to be able to come in through the back door and disciple your children and disciple your wife and disciple your husband because you have neglected your own family. One of the things we look for day after day, week after week, in the office when we're Pastor Greg, Pastor Bob, Vivian and I, when we're talking, we have senior staff in the office and we're talking about ministry and the people, the days in, the days out that we have. One of the things that we discuss uh, among the elders when we're talking about people before we lay hands on somebody, before we put somebody involved in ministry, we explore, we investigate. We want to know that that person is not an unintentional hypocrite. And it's wonderful if you want to go out and save the world. You want to go out and have an effective ministry and fill in the blank, wherever that might be. But the first thing is, what are you doing with your family? How's your relationship with your wife? How's your relationship with your husband? How's your relationship with your children? If your child is beginning to have a reputation for being babysat by a smartphone or an iPad, and every time you see that child, they have a smartphone or an iPad when they're at church... That could be, I'm not saying it always is, but it could be an indication that the parents have defaulted. They've dropped back and punted. They've defaulted on investing in their children and have used what is very easy. I've got a smartphone. I've got an iPad. You've got multiple computers. I know that it's easy to sit down with your child and say, you know what? I'm having a talk with mom or dad. Just go ahead. Just take this thing and just get out of my hair for a moment. You know, you've got to be careful about what comes in through the back door of your own house. Many of you might be familiar, those of you who have apps, with an app called Game of War. Anybody familiar with the app called Game of War? And some of the graphics involved in the Game of War? What? Well, how could it be harmful? It's a free app. <laughs> I mean, free means it's good. No, it's not free. There are a lot of things that are free that are going to cost you a great deal. In the disciple-making process, you have to be intentional. You have to be deliberate. You have to be watchful over your own family. Because if you are not discipling your own family, if you as a man are not a Barnabas to your woman, if you as a woman are not a Barnabas to your man, if you as the man are not the Paul, in your household, not because you're superior to the woman, but because there is this principle of headship in the Bible. If you're not leading your family, we don't want you leading some other ministry or being involved in another ministry. If your kids are wayward and out of control, the first thing we'll do with you is sit down with you and talk to you and say, thank you for your desire to do ministry, but you're forgetting something here. You're forgetting something. Right under your nose, God has given you children. Right under your nose, God has given you a spouse, a suitable helpmate. And you're supposed to be suitable for them as well. 
So in your quest for a Barnabas, in your quest for a Paul, in your quest for a Timothy, consider first and foremost your own family because someday your children are going to be emancipated and their ability to follow Jesus, their knowledge of Jesus, is going to be a reflection of how you invested in them or how you didn't. And so a disciple is intentional about this area, the people in our lives, the people. The other thing that a disciple is intentional about, deliberate about, is the M, five-letter word that it's dangerous to talk about, but we're going to talk about it anyway, money. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Giving must be planned. Not sporadic and haphazard. Giving must be planned. Money. We've talked about the people. Now we're talking about the M, the money. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. We get the idea that Paul is being consistent. Whether he's talking to the churches in Galatia or the church in Corinth, Paul was giving the same type of a teaching to all the churches where he ministered and to the ones he taught. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Notice it says, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, meaning in proportion to what God has given you, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Giving must be planned. This means you get your paycheck or you know what your paycheck is and you pray over it. You literally do that. You get your paycheck, you talk with your spouse if you're married, you bring your kids around the table and you literally, you talk and you say, Lord, you've given us this amount of money. We know that we typically get it each week. Some of us get paychecks twice a month. Some of us get paychecks once a month, whatever the case might be. But the intentionality, the purposefulness, the planned aspect of it is there. And you say to the Lord, Lord, this is what you've given us. We know that in the Old Testament, the principle of giving 10% is a good entry point. Lord, we know that in today's difficult times, it's hard to make ends meet. And yet we want to be faithful to you. We want to take what David says in, in the scriptures, I will not give God what costs me nothing. Lord, We want to give to you intentionally and purposefully and in a planned way. And you pray in accordance with what God has given you, and then you give it. And you do it consistently. This means that if church is canceled because of snow, you don't then go and blow what you had planned to give if you happen to be in church. Did I just say that? Did it just get hot in here? This means that You're intentional. Regardless of where you go, you know where your money is going to go. Because it's not your money. And it's not mine. It's God's money. And it makes no difference to me whatsoever. I don't get a bonus if giving goes up. There's no personal gain for me. There's only personal gain for you. And for the glory of God... When you are a planned giver, whether you give live, whether you give online, and you might say, well, but how is that directly involved in the Great Commission? Listen, if you're not part of a church that keeps the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing being making disciples, then you need to find a church 
that rediscovers or knows and is practicing the Great Commission. Yesterday at the men's breakfast where we had the men's intense time, we had over 250, nearly 300 guys. A guy accepted Christ right there. At partnership, a few weeks ago, we had three people who came thinking they were going to become members of the church. They needed to first become members of the church universal by giving their life to Jesus Christ. Three people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Pastor Bob was counseling a couple with difficulties and hardships, as often is the case, and the guy gives his life to Jesus Christ right there as they're counseling. We have had over 400, I think it's approaching 500 now, people give their lives to Christ just over the past two years because we are intentionally, (laughs) deliberately, purposely keeping the main thing the main thing. Your giving must be planned. And just like Paul said, I'm going to take the money and bring it to the church in Jerusalem where the epicenter was. Your money goes into a kitty, and we're able to then pay people for what they need to be paid to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is discipleship. So your giving needs to be planned. And some of us give more than others. I don't know how much you should be giving. God knows how much you should be giving. And if you're not asking God how much you should be giving, then you need to begin by asking God. Some of us need to play catch-up. I realize that. But God loves a cheerful giver. Second thing you need to understand, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says this beginning in verse 1. See, the Corinthians had prospered in every single way. This is the group of believers whom Paul had to rebuke because they had every spiritual gift and they had every kind of immorality as well. They had every spiritual gift and they had every type of immorality you could imagine as well. Shouldn't have been. But yet the Corinthians were behind in the undeserved favor, the grace of giving financially. This church that had so much, these believers who had so much, been given so much by God, knowledge and wisdom and insight and spiritual gift after spiritual gift, they were behind in the area of giving. And another group of believers who were behind in their wealth were out giving the Corinthians, the Macedonian churches. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1, it says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. What? This sounds like a crisis. No, it's not a crisis. Out of all this difficult that they were going through. They have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you know that your giving makes it easier for other people to simply follow Jesus? To come to know him as Lord and Savior in the first place? Verse 5, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love or our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, and I say this not as a command either, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know 
by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. For God so loved the world that he gave 10% of his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Doesn't say that. Paul goes on to urge the Corinthians, finish what you started. You were going to give. Make sure you give it. Make sure you give to God what you say you're going to give to God. See, the example that Paul is giving here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is not tithing. This is a Pharisee, a man well-versed in the Old Testament. It's a golden opportunity. It's been teed up for him perfectly. It's right there, ready for him to launch into it. He could have pulled out of his theological hat the teaching of tithing to the Corinthians, but he doesn't do that. What does Paul do instead? Paul's example of giving when it comes to finances and the mission, the great commission, the mission of God is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't give 10% of himself. He gave all of himself. You know, I grew up on a farm not far from here in New Jersey, and I had a border collie named Sam. And I used to go for bike rides with my dog, Sam. I used to take him up our 50-yard long driveway, gravel driveway, walk my bike up because you can't ride a 10-speed bike. That's what was big and happening back then. You can't ride a 10-speed bike on a gravel uh, driveway. So I'd walk that bike up, and my dog, Sam, would follow me. Only problem is that I would also go up that same driveway to get the mail repeatedly, and my dog Sam would follow me to get that mail all the time. And I'd get the mail from the mailbox and run back down the driveway. And I must have done that in the course of my childhood probably hundreds of times. One day I decided to go on a bike ride with that bike I was just talking to you about, and my dog Sam followed me, and we got up to the end of the driveway, and I put my leg up over that bike and hopped onto it and made sure it was in the lowest gear possible and began to pedal, and my dog Sam was right there by my side for about 10 yards. And then he turned around and ran, and I looked back behind me, and he was there by the mailbox because he was a border collie. There by the mailbox, jumping up and down, all nervous and agitated and excited. I said, come on, Sam. Sam came running back to me about 10 yards, got right up to my bicycle, and we started to go down the road again with my bike, of course, him next to me. And then he turned around, yiped a few times, jumped up and down, and went back to the mailbox. I tried it again. This time, Sam would not move. He stayed right there at my mailbox. And I realized they're called border collies on purpose. What I had done is I had trained my dog Sam to only go so far up to the mailbox that was a border for him and no further. So when I gave him the uncomfortable command to follow me as I was on my bike to go for a bike ride, Sam was not willing to do it. He's not able to do it. Couldn't get his mind wrapped around the idea that I was now asking him to go beyond his comfort zone. And you know, brothers and sisters, this is what we seem to have done when it comes to giving in the body of Christ. Why would I want to encourage you to do something that the New Testament doesn't do? You want to give 10% to God, that's between you and God. You want to give more than that, that's between you and God. You want to give less less than that, it's between you and God. But I think it's good to say that The 10% is a good starting point. What we've done in the body of Christ is we've taught people 
how to do the bare minimum, and yet we expect to get the absolute maximum in our walk with Christ. It's not the way it works. Committing to the absolute minimum of anything when it comes to following Jesus will never give you a rich reward, a rich inheritance, and a rich legacy. Your money does matter to God because it does take money to fulfill the Great Commission. In our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. If we're going to be a church of local, regional, national, international impact, if you're going to be a Christian of local, regional, national, international impact, if you're going to be a Christian family of local, regional, national, international impact, then what you do with your M, your money, or should I say God's money, does make a world of difference. Finally, I want to talk about this one last thing, the T. The T here, in regard to your time. One of the distinct differences in the life of a disciple compared to a dabbler is how a disciple uses their time, not just any time. FaceTime. FaceTime. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God, the person of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and if you're an evangelical Christian, you believe pretty much in Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. You believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed. It's God-breathed from the Lord, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament. And it is helpful, therefore, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that you may be competent, equipped for every good work. And this is the book that we use with your Barnabas. It's the book you use with your Timothy. It's the book that you use as you're intentional with the people in your life. But you know, it doesn't matter if we believe that every word of this book is inspired if we're not spending time with God face-to-face in this book. You have to spend time in this book. A disciple is deliberate with their face time with God. You can have a word from God anytime you want, anytime you want. You say, I'm not Pentecostal. You say, I am Pentecostal. You say, I'm not charismatic. You say, I am charismatic. Wherever you are theologically in your view of how God speaks and when he speaks, whether you're charismatic, Pentecostal, cessationist, or somewhere in between, we all believe that this is the word of God. Do we not? We all believe that all scripture is God-breathed. Therefore, whether you're charismatic or whether you're a cessationist, whether you're chosen, frozen, or whether you're out there all over the place, you can have a word from God every single time you open up this book of books. 
It does not matter if this book is God-breathed. If you, as someone who claims to be a disciple, if I, as someone who claims to be a disciple, am not spending face time in this God-breathed book, a distinguishing characteristic of a disciple compared to a dabbler is that they prioritize time in the Word of God. Look with me at Psalm 119 verse 9. Look at what the psalmist said. Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man, how can anybody keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? It's not possible to guard your life according to the word of God if you're out of the word of God. You've got to be in the word of God. The foundation of everything a disciple does with the people who you interact with, with the money that a disciple spends and how a disciple invests their money for the kingdom of God or doesn't. All of that. Is an overflow of spending time, face time, with God in his word. How can a young man keep his way pure? Especially in the 21st century. And then the answer comes by guarding it according to your word. You want to make sin hit the high road in your life, in your family, in the church? You get into the Word of God. You spend time in the Word of God. What if I were to tell you there was something that you could do over the next seven days to get you into the Word of God as a disciple that's not as difficult as you otherwise would think it is that would absolutely revolutionize every part of your walk with God? What if I were to give you something simple, something revolutionary? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.